0: 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The last days got underway 2,000 years ago. This has been rolling for a while. To us, when we think of the last, we don't think of a span of 2,000 years. We think if we're at the last, it's a few minutes or a few days or maybe a month or so. But if I'm at the last... But biblically speaking, you Bible students understand this clearly, the last days began before Pentecost. At Pentecost, Peter quoted from the book of Joel to to denote that this is the sign of the last days, the, the outpouring of the Spirit. I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind in the last days. So we know it was at least at Pentecost, but we also know that in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. So we are in the last days, have been in the last days. Jesus called this age of the last days the times of the Gentiles, Luke 21:24. And they were, in, they were set in motion with His first advent and they will conclude with His second advent. And everything in between is the last days. I can't wait to get into Hebrews. I know some of you have studied through and you know we're going to correct some of that teaching. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward. I love the book of Hebrews. I think I shared with you all before that Hebrews was the first book that I studied verse by verse through personally that I really dug in and and it's where I cut my teeth, I think, on Bible teaching for the first time in my life in a way that that really uh, changed my perspective. But in the book of Hebrews, the way it begins is just so marvelous. In these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. God has made it clear who we are to listen to. And that is Jesus. And what encourages me is knowing that in these last days, while difficult times will come, as Paul writes... We also know that in these last days, we get to hear His Son. So I can listen. I can hear from Jesus. I can be directed by Jesus. I can get clarification from Jesus. I'm going to give you more understanding of what that means in just a moment. But in the last days, we take comfort in His voice. We need the comfort of the voice of Jesus because in these last days, we know there must be peril. Difficult times will come, Paul says. Well difficult is the Greek word halopos, which is also translated perilous, fierce, hard to bear, and even if we compare verses, violent. In these last days, difficult, perilous, fierce, hard to bear, violent times will come. Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, Matthew uses the same word, halipos, when he says, Jesus came to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes, and two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely halapos, so extremely violent, that no one could pass by that way. So when Paul says in the last days halopos times will come, anyone who thinks they can just bypass the last days unscathed is completely misunderstanding, has not studied what the Bible says about the last days. That the last days are difficult, perilous, fierce, violent times. That should be our expectation and our understanding. And by the way... This includes faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We don't skate by in the last days. We should expect hard times. Encouraged yet? Remember, we have the comforting voice of Jesus all along. But these are perilous times. Paul doesn't sugarcoat this for Timothy. We've long known that perilous times would mark these last days. We've understood that. In fact, if you read scripture, you understand that the last seven years of the last days are described as an unparalleled, earth-shattering, global tribulation. Where things get so bad, so dark. And in Joel chapter 2 verse 2, he describes it that way, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Daniel says as well, actually Gabriel to Daniel says, For there will be a time of distress, Daniel chapter 12, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And then Jesus confirmed this, Matthew 24, 21. Then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. That's the final seven years of this age. But what the church has misconstrued, misunderstood, misapplied over the years, especially going all the way back to about 325 or so Or even further back to three twelve, and the rise of Constantine, and the church began to get easy, and people began to think, "Oh, we've come into the kingdom now," and they had not. But there have been different times in these last days that people have said, "Oh, it's it's just going to get better and better," and and we're going to we're going to hand the kingdom to Jesus on a silver platter. We're going to conquer the world for him. Well, I'm here to tell you, the Bible says things will go from dark to darker to darkest. Before the final dawn in the return of Jesus Himself, so do not expect it to ease up. Expect it to get more intense than it has ever been. Tonight, I, I feel a bit like uh, Marley, Jacob, not Bob. I feel like Jacob Marley. There's there's a point in that Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol, where Marley's ghost, you know, is talking to Scrooge, and Scrooge says, "Speak comfort to me, Jacob." And Marley says, I have none to give. It comes from other regions, Ebenezer Scrooge, and is conveyed by other ministers to other kinds of men. So I was reading through and studying this and thinking, wow, I don't know if I've got any comfort to give with what we have to look at with these perilous times. And what Paul's going to describe here in chapter 3 is a little disconcerting. And yet, there is a comfort in these words tonight. A deep and abiding comfort. Not the stuff of fluff. We're not talking about like palliative pain relief. We're talking about a comfort that goes deeper than all of that. Isaiah describes it in Jesus. And this is why I started by saying, note that we have the voice of Jesus in these last days. God has spoken to us in His Son. So our comfort comes in Jesus and by Jesus and from Jesus, but listen to Isaiah's description of him. Isaiah 11 verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and this same Spirit is the Spirit who speaks to you and to me today, who speaks into the last days. What does that mean? He doesn't mention rainbows, fairy tales, or my pillow. That's not the description of what fills Jesus, you know, soft, fluffy comfort. No, he says wisdom and understanding. Well, guess what? If someone is speaking wisdom and understanding into my life, what does that bring? Preparation. It prepares me for what's coming. So, so I'm not going to be caught off guard. If someone speaks counsel and strength into my life, well then that brings with it expectation, I know what's coming. I'm counseled in it and I'm strengthened by the voice that I hear, the voice of Jesus. And then finally with knowledge and fear comes decision. We can choose this day whom we're going to serve. Preparation, expectation, decision... Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. And these aspects of the very Spirit that is in Jesus, who He has given to us, speaks comfort, a deep, strong comfort, even in perilous times. We can be encouraged. Because even as these days get darker, we know Psalm 119.105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Or as Peter said in 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. We need a lamp to navigate dark times. And again, expect that dark times will become darker times leading into the darkest times. I believe that the Bible teaches we will be caught up. The church... Followers of Jesus will be caught up before the darkest times, but it's going to get dark and it is even darker now than I ever expected it to be in my life. There is a most dangerous threat in these perilous times that Paul now gets into and I would just call it the human condition. I'll give you the rest of this chapter in three parts and that will be part one. The human condition, verse 2. For men will be lovers of self. Oh, wait, wait. Before we go any further, note this. It's very important. The word men is anthropos. Now, I keep pointing that out because this is not just for the guys. Ladies, you're stuck with us in this. And this refers to humanity. Anthropos in the Greek always talks about all humanity. There is a very specific word for man, a very specific word for woman. Anthropos is everybody. So no lady is off the hook with what we're about to read. Neither are we guys. For all people, we could say, for men, will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And that describes the human condition, I think in all times, but darkening in these last days. Three of these 19 traits pretty much cover the whole list. You could summarize the whole list with lovers of self and lovers of money in verse 2, and finally in verse 4, lovers of pleasure. Everything else kind of pings off of those. The rest of the adjectives described by these three primary conditions. There's another way to look at this, and I'll just point this out to you. Some have said you can break this into four parts. Where you say, part one, lovers of self and lovers of money, are described as boastful, arrogant revilers. Part two would be those who are disobedient to parents, who then become ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. And then those who are malicious gossips are without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. And finally, those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And you can break it down that way as well. It doesn't really matter how you break it down. We see in these traits a, a darkness in the heart of the Anthropos, in the heart of humanity, Let me ask you, when you read this list, does it describe humanity in these days? I mean, not to be Mr. Negative, I tend to be a more positive guy, glasses half full, you know. But when I read this, I think, I'm seeing this all over the place. I'm seeing this everywhere, not here. But I'm seeing this in our society, in our culture, between people The animosity and the hatred and the brutality is is dark. Matthew 16, verse 2. Jesus said, When it's evening you say, Fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? You know, we often think, when we hear the phrase, Signs of the times, when we think of last days... I asked our staff this morning, if someone said to you, what are the signs of the times of the last days, what do you think of? And immediately we go to earthquakes, wars and rumors, and we go to Matthew 24, the birth pains, right? Floods, fire, famine, all of these global indicators of the signs of the times. Well, those weren't indicators of the times in Jesus' day, were they? When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and He says, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky but cannot discern the signs of the times, He at that point, talking to the Pharisees, was talking about those times. You guys can't discern what's going on here. You don't know the sign of the times. And they're like, show us the sign. And He goes, you're going to get one sign. Do you remember what it was? The sign of Jonah, the Son of Man, will be in the earth three days and three nights. That's the sign. That was the sign of the times in Jesus' day. What are the signs of the times in our day? I would suggest to you, not that the birth pangs aren't happening because we see that, but the true signs of the times right now have more to do with the human heart. And what we see going on in relationship and between people and in activity and behavior on the planet... I remind you of what Jeremiah wrote. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Now, it's always been that way. But the truth is, Jesus indicated there would be an increasing hardening of the heart. A cardiomyopathy, if you will. Spiritually speaking. He said because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Cold and dark. Personally, when I look at this list, I think the most easy way to consider it is just to combine the first and the last statement in verse 2 and verse 4, for men will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That sums up the whole thing. Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. It's interesting, when you look in the letters to the seven churches of the Revelation of Jesus, the letter to the church at Laodicea, Laodicea, means the people's rights. It's all about the people. It's all about what the people want, what the people get. It's very self-centered and self-motivated. And if you read the letter to Laodicea, you see where that leads. It leads to lethargy and lukewarmness and no real belief any one way, hot or cold. And the reality is that men will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That is the problem in our world. Philippians 2.21, Paul said they will seek after their own interests, all of them, not those of Christ Jesus. And isn't it interesting in our culture that what Paul describes as the disease, our culture embraces as the cure, self-love, lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That's the problem, Paul says, and our culture says, love yourself, that's the solution. And the more that self-love is touted as the solution, the deeper the disease, the worse the pain. Man, if Jesus taught us anything, it was not self-love, it was selfless love. It was the love of God and the love of others long before ourselves. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.15, he said, that Paul wrote, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And I am fully convinced of this, that the only thing that can heal the self-hatred of the sinner's heart is not self-love. It is the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That can heal the heart that hates itself. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5, it's why the Lord said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Why, Lord? Well, for one thing, He is wholly deserving of all of our love. But you know what? The more you love God, the more you can't hate yourself, because you know, He created you. You're a product of, of His desire, of His will, of His craftsmanship. I can't love Him and hate myself. But He doesn't say, so love yourself. He says, so love Me. Love the Lord your God. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. It's a beautiful statement. Pour your love into Me and you're going to find yourself doing righteously. It just happens. You don't have to work on the righteousness. Just love Me. The righteousness will flow. Again, Jesus knew the love of and the love for God is the single healing healing agent to the disease of our selfish sin, of our natural nature. Which is why He reiterated that command in Deuteronomy, Matthew 22.37, He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And then He said, listen, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I have heard pastors take that and say, see, so you have to love yourself so that you can love your neighbor. And I say, wrong. Because the greatest commandment is you have to love God. And then as you love God, you're going to start loving your neighbor. And all of that then causes you to realize that you're not such a bad dude in the first place. And love for yourself does come along. But it doesn't, you don't love self to love God more. You don't love self so that you can love your neighbor. I'll get around to loving you. It's not like the oxygen mask on the airplane. When it drops, put it on your own face before you give it to the child. You know? And I've always thought I would just take my time. I'll get to you. you know? <laughs> Hang on. That's not what he's talking about when he says to love your neighbor as yourself. You love God first. You love your neighbor. You get the mask on them. You help them to breathe and you will find yourself breathing. It's the self-love that we are so confused about. It was 1986 that Whitney Houston came out with um, The Greatest Love of All. What a sham of a song. It was actually written in 1977. George Benson covered it, got a hit out of it, and then Whitney Houston did. The greatest love of all, she's saying, is to learn to love yourself. Thanks for playing. Wrong answer. The greatest love of all is the love of God. And then the love of other people. And you will not have to worry about loving yourself. But if you love self first, you will end up walking away from God. Look at verse 5 again. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 4. Verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And the problem is that self-love leads me right into self-righteousness and false religion. A form of godliness, that word form there is morphosis. Like with the word metamorphosis. And it literally means a semblance or a facade. A facade of religion, a facade of godliness... It's all about the look. Holding to a form. You want to look righteous. You know, there's a lot of that going around today. It's funny, back when I, I had actually taught through Second Timothy before, years and years ago, not, not when I did it here, but, but previously in some old, old notes I looked at, and I remember looking at this whole issue of holding to a form of godliness while denying its power and, and applying it to people in the church who are acting religious. I realize that today, that's not where the issue is. It's not people with you know, the, the three-piece suit faking everybody out on a Sunday morning. It's our entire culture that is holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. What do you mean, Rick? I mean moral outrage by the morally bankrupt. We're watching people get all upset about something that they're doing. But in the front, in the face, what's put out to society, oh, I'm outraged. And then they're doing it behind our backs. It's days in which the unrighteous have become the self-righteously indignant. That is what I see in our society. And I'm not meaning to bash or be negative, but, but man, people are standing for moral absolutes with zero foundation of moral clarity on their, in their own lives. Nothing to base it on. The last couple of teachings, I think I've mentioned this because I'm really thinking about it right now. People standing up and going, that is wrong. And you say, based on what? Based on how I feel. Well, that's fantastic. There's a rock solid foundation. How I feel? Well, how are you going to feel tomorrow? Hmm. Hmm. The problem with the form or the look of godliness is it's absolutely void of an honest to goodness, genuine relationship with Jesus. That's what's missing. It's just pretense of godliness. It's counterfeit and therefore it's powerless. That form of godliness. Now, get this. What, what happens when you enter into a relationship with Jesus? When you hear his voice speaking to you in these last days? What happens? Verse 7 of chapter 1, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind or discipline. So the power is inherent in the relationship. The love is is part of the relationship and the sound-mindedness, the the discipline, that comes along with it too. If, If I am actually holding to true godliness, if my love of Jesus is what produces godliness in my life, But if it's just a form, a semblance of self-righteous indignance, well, it's powerless. It's gutless. Titus 1.16 says, They profess to know God, but by deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Remember how Paul described in our last study, uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, You can just look back a few verses. Verse uh, 17 says, their talk will spread like gangrene. Chapter 2, verse 17. Gangrenous. When something gets gangrenous, all you can do is cut it off. And this is difficult. There are situations in which the only thing you can do is, as Paul says, verse 5, avoid such men... As these. Why is that so difficult? Well, it's not difficult in the flesh, but it is difficult in the spirit because in the spirit we're about reconciliation and restoration and love and compassion and acceptance. You know, when the world calls Christians intolerance, it's a real dig because of all the people in the world, we ought to be the most gracious, the most loving, the most accepting, the most desirous of all people to come to Jesus, right? But here Paul says, but you need to avoid such men as these. And it brings about a reality that there are times in a relationship when the relationship must be cut off. When? When is that point? Well, you know, we can't, you know, quantify it like that. We can't just say, well, this is the time. When they, this far and no further. I mean, in any relationship. But the question is, has the blood of Christ become restricted in its flow? So I can give you examples of this. In the church, it's division. When you have someone in the church or in a church fellowship that is seeding division into the body, already cutting off this person from this person or causing that group to side from this group, when that's taking place, that person must be cut off. Or repent. But if they will not repent, cut them off. Because the body must be able to receive the flow of blood. Or it will become gangrenous and it will divide itself. Outside of the body, what about in the world? Well, in the world you got to check your heart. Listen to what John says. I'll just read this to you. It's one of, to me, the most fascinating little passages, little sections in the Bible. Second John chapter 9. Listen to what he says. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now that's a very clear statement. So any spiritual teaching outside of that which teaches Jesus as the Christ is a sham, it's a lie. Does not have God. Then he says, the one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the teaching of Jesus... Do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Someone knocks on your door and wants to talk about something other than Christ, wants to introduce another, perhaps, religion or religious perspective other than that of Jesus. And John says, the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. What does that mean? Well, I'll talk about that when we get to Second John. No, I'm kidding. That's serious business. Mormons come knocking at the door, teaching a different Jesus. Jehovah's Witness show up at the door wanting to talk about a different gospel. All I will say about it is you gotta decide whether or not you want to let him in. But you better be sharp. You better know the word of God. You better not just run on a heart of compassion with no sense of what it is they're bringing. Because the number one convert to Mormonism in the world is an evangelical Christian. Did you know that? Those who follow Jesus, who love Jesus, and they get in conversations with Mormons and get spun around and they hear this sound so good and it's so sugar-coated and so nice to hear and they welcome them in and next thing they know they have left The teachings of Jesus Christ. So, I'm saying be careful with that, think it through. The danger with false teachers is this, they always go after the unsuspecting or the weak in faith. If you're strong in faith and in your understanding, and especially if you've studied these things, go after them. Absolutely. I'm not saying shy away from, you know, people of different faith because we want to rescue them. They're captive of the enemy too. But know yourself. Be sharp, be wise, be learned. In the Scriptures, what does the Bible really say about all these different topics that they're going to bring to your door? Because again, the false teacher will go after the weak in faith. Look at verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Is that offensive to any of you ladies? First of all, Paul's writing to Timothy, so you shouldn't be listening. Weak women, Paul says, and some of the ladies over the years have read that and go, well, that's just Paul. He's a chauvinist. That's just what he is proof right there. Listen, it's not a slur against women. It's a warning for a certain mentality. A certain type of woman, if you will. He doesn't even use the usual word for woman, which is gune. Instead, he uses the word carry-on," which is not a lady's light luggage for an airplane. (laughs) You won't forget that one. Guna carry on. What the word literally means is a silly, gullible, impulsive woman. So it uses gune, which is woman, but it adds carry on, which is silliness, foolish, weak willed, as it's defined or translated here. And what Paul is getting at, and by the way, if that offends you, don't be a silly woman, girls, ladies. If that bothers you, don't do that. Don't be foolish. Don't be weak willed. Know your stuff. There's nothing, well, I love the idea of of a Mormon showing up at a house, little housewife opens the door and just slams them with the truth of the Bible. That would be awesome. Don't be weak-willed. Don't be going to carry on if that bothers you. But he's talking about those who are already weighed down by impulsive sinful living. That's a hint as to where the heart is. Led by emotion rather than by truth. Ladies, and I'm asking you specifically, simply because he used the word gune carry on, so he is talking about a specific attitude with women. Are you more emotional or more truthful? Are you more feelings based or faith based? So the challenge is that God did make women more sensitive. God did make women more emotional, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Because He made men, in a lot of times, like boards. <laughs> why, is she, why is she crying? I don't know. I, t- Tonight, I'm at home. I, I, I had to, uh, got Naomi home. She's had a long day. She's very tired. She had to sit down and do math while Cheryl was doing her hair, which, if you know anything about African American hair, it can be very painful to have done. And so Cheryl's there, you know, just <coughs> playing. And Naomi, you know, like this. And she, she was at ballet this afternoon. She had school all day. And, and she's sitting there and she's got math in front of her while Cheryl's pulling her hair out. <laughs> and I'm in the kitchen and, and I just see a tear run down her face. Naomi is, I, I tell you what, she's a carbon copy of my daughter Hannah because both girls at that age... You could just say, Hey, what are you doing? and they'd start crying. (laughs) Naomi has that sweet tenderness about her, that emotion. I'm standing in the kitchen. It took me a while. This is the male perspective. I looked at him like, Are you crying? no crying in baseball. There's no crying. You know? And I started to put it together because I've been a dad long enough and I've had daughters long enough that I start to see the signs. Okay, she's hurting. She's tired. She's probably hungry. I went over there and I just whispered in her ear, do you want dad to make you some dinner? And she was like, pff, pff, like this. And I, you know, so dad of the night award right here. Because I figured it out. Guys, I figured it out. I normally don't. No, back to what we're talking about. False teachers zero in on those who they deem weak. They may not even intentionally know this themselves, but the enemy does, and he will send them to that person. False teachers are snakes in the garden with Eve, looking for godliness. Eve's looking for godliness. You remember the story, we've been over this. What does Satan say? You want to be like God? Oh, yeah! Yes! And so he tempts, lies to, deceives her. And what happens to Eve? She ends up powerless. Note that. Holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. And so these the weak woman here that's being described the false teachers go after them and then in verse 8 he continues on let me say one more thing about verse 7 they are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth you know anybody like that all they do is ask questions and when you're giving them the answer to one question they're already on to the next question and they cannot hear the answer for the questions that's an issue that's a problem and I would say to all of us, men and women, if you have a question, stop. Deal with the question first, and then if another question comes up, that's fine. But deal with. It. Don't run on. It's the one thing. Well, one of many things I do not like about the books written by Rob Bell, who I've mentioned before, like the book he wrote. This is a few years back now, uh, called Love Wins. All about just kind of universal salvation, but the thing is, if you read a Rob Bell book, what you see is question, 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 question. No answers. And after a while, you go, "Wow, I'm really, I'm really confused." And what he does is he gets you where he wants you to be by questioning you into a corner until you've been hit with so many questions you don't really have an answer. And you're like, oh, he must be right." And that's a weak-willed response. I read one question and go, okay, wait, what's the answer to that one? Because that denies your next question. Always, always learning. Always learning is great. It's never able to come to a knowledge of the truth that's the problem. Just as verse 8, Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the truth. Again, men, all the way down here, it's, it's anthropos. So these are people with this attitude, and he says in verse nine, "But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambris's folly was also." You know what's interesting? These two guys. I mean, you think of the two magicians. If you saw the Prince of Egypt, you know, the, the years ago that uh, animated special of the story of Moses. You had the two guys. Steve Martin was one of the voices for the guys. And they're named here by Paul. Janus and Jambres. Or Ianis and Iambres. And they are not listed in the Hebrew Scriptures. They're not named. You will not find them in the Old Testament at all. You hear them here. Paul gives them a name. That's interesting. And what we have discovered is that while they are not in the Hebrew Scriptures, they are in Talmud. They are in the ancient rabbinical tradition. The rabbis throw these names around, and it's entirely likely that the names are not actual names as much as they are jokes, which Paul knew. And so, uses these names, indicators of these magicians of Egypt. Naming them, why? Because Janus means vexed, frustrated. And of course, Exodus 7.11 says, then Pharaoh called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. These guys were tied in to the demonic powers. So when Aaron threw down his staff and it turned into a serpent, they threw down their staffs and they turned into serpents as well. So through their trickery and their magic arts, they did the same thing. However, you remember the story? Each one threw down his staff and they turned into serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. Now you try walking home, loser. <laughs> Janice, vexed, frustrated. Man, everything we do, what he does, wins. Die. Yeah. And then Jambres, or Yambres, which means, <laughs> I like this one, foamy healer. Foamy. Like fluff, like nothing, no substance. Bubbly. There may also be a reason for this and that's Exodus 9.11 and that is they could not stand before Moses because of the boils for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Foamy healer. Bubbly. (laughs) False teaching. However damaging cannot stand against the truth. But you have to know the truth. When you know the truth, what happens is the lies, well, they they boil over. <laughs> the folly becomes foamy and it becomes seen for what it is. It's just an infection. It's just a disease. It can become gangrenous and, be, and need to be cut off. But all of these things, these 19 or so traits, this is the human condition. Paul now turns to nine traits of godly disciples in the last days. This is part two. The fellowship of suffering. Verse 10. Now, you followed my teaching. Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Okay, stop right there. It sounded really good until we hit the last two. I love the list. I think, yes, as a disciple of Jesus in the last days, I want to be a teacher with good conduct and purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. That sounds great. Let's stop right there. <laughs> Persecutions and sufferings. It's, it's like what Jesus said. Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Truly I say to you that no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses, yes, Lord. Brothers and sisters, oh yeah. Mothers, children, farms, go on, Lord. Along with persecutions, wait, what? And he says, in the age to come, eternal life gives this marvelous list. You lose, you're going to gain. You give up, you're going to get far more. And it's absolutely true. Anyone who has lost a family member for the sake of following Jesus, what do you get? A big family. That's what he does. And persecutions. And peril. And difficulty in these last days. And Paul gives his own personal example. He says, such as happened to me at Antioch, and at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me at Pisidian Antioch. Paul was booted out of the city for preaching the gospel, Acts chapter 13, verse 50. At Iconium, they tried to stone him. He got away with his skin, Acts chapter 14, verse five. and at Lystra, they succeeded in stoning Paul, Acts 14:19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium having won over the crowds they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing him to be dead. I think he was dead. I think God raised him up. Personal opinion? I could be wrong. But Paul says, Timothy, you were witness to this. And when you think about emulating me or following my example of my, of my teaching and my conduct and my purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance, that's good. But understand, if you're following that example, you're also following the example of persecutions and suffering. It is part of the deal, especially in these last days. Timothy saw it all. And Paul is not playing on emotion or fear. This was Paul's life. This was Paul's reality. And what he's describing in the last days for Timothy, as Paul is about to go to the chopping block. Remember, he's days away from laying his head on the block and having it chopped off. So he's going to be out of here quickly. The suffering, the persecution will be over for Paul. They will just be beginning for Timothy. And Paul says, it's what you're going to face. It's what it's going to be like. Paul is writing this reality from his cold dark, dungeness cell on death row. And he says, indeed, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the key word is godly. What do you mean? A lot of people like the idea of living in Christ Jesus. That is, I'll be a Christian. How often do I have to go to church? When do I have to show up? do I have to sign up for children's ministry? You know, what's the, what's the least that I can do and live my life but still be you know in the fold, so to speak? I want to be in Christ Jesus. To be godly in Christ Jesus, well, now you're starting to put some demands on me. Now you're actually talking about my behavior and my belief and how my belief affects my behavior and what I'm doing in my life with ministry and how I'm engaged in this world. Now it's a little bit more than that. Well, you know what? In these last days, two roots are offered to you. Two ways. There's the easy route, and that's the way of Eve. It's a form of godliness through compromise. It's a dead end. You don't end up staying in the garden. It's those who hold to a form of godliness although they've denied its power and there is plenty of that in the church. I hate to say it, but I have seen it and I have lived it. Let me put it on myself. There have been many years in my life where I lived powerless though a follower of Jesus. Holding to a form of godliness, I believed what I had been taught and lived that way and did those things. A form of godliness, but denying the power Of the Holy Spirit active in these last days in our lives. That's one route, the easy route. You can show up, you can be involved in church and get your name in the directory. Not do much. You can desire to live in Christ Jesus, but to live godly in Christ Jesus, this is the only other path in these last days. To live godly in Christ Jesus is the blood-stained way of the cross. It's gonna hurt. You're gonna get run over you're going to be misunderstood. Jesus said, Matthew 16.24, However, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself. Again, so much for self-love. Take up his cross. Follow Me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. And in my opinion, that's the road worth walking. It's a one-way road of the last days to live godly in Christ Jesus. And yes, to suffer for it. Yes, there will be hardship. But with it, the power of God, the love of Christ, and the sound mind of the Spirit. Is that not worth it? Even if there be suffering. Paul says, and I believe he wrote this with a smile on his face. 2 Corinthians 4.7 We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing. Persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Remember when he was stoned outside of Lystra? What did he do? God raises him up. He stands up, shakes it off and goes right back into the city. That's awesome. How could he do that? Paul knew Jesus. Jesus. In these last days, God had spoken to him through the Son. Paul knew this. Paul says, we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may, may be manifested in our body. What does that mean? It means I am covered all over with the blood of Christ. With the sacrificial death of Jesus, I am saved, I am washed, I am pure, and I walk alive, even if struck. Even if attacked, even if suffering in these last days. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Think of it this way. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. That is Jesus. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And then he says this. I think it's an interesting verse. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Who of you By seeking to live godly in Christ Jesus has been caused to shed blood for it. We were in Cebu in the Philippines. pastor Harvin Aloro's church. A group of pastors gathered there. I was actually teaching this teaching or a similar teaching out of 2 Timothy 3. And so I asked the question to the pastors gathered. Have any of you ever... Knowing that they have a hard life, by the way, knowing that pastoring in the Philippines is not easy. Have any of you ever resisted to the point of shedding blood? It was a rhetorical question. I didn't expect a single hand to go up. One hand did. Pastor Harvin. And it, it shocked me for a moment. He was in the back of the room. No one else saw him. I saw him when he went. Afterward, I went up to him. I said, Harvin, you got to tell me. What happened? His own father had struck him so hard across the face for sharing Jesus that he began to bleed. Can you imagine that? You're in your house, your father doesn't believe in Jesus, and you keep saying, Dad, I just want you to know Christ. And one day he hauls off and slaps you so hard that your mouth starts pouring blood. And that's what happened to Harvin. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be Persecuted. Paul himself counted all things as loss. Philippians three ten, saying, "So that I may know Him." Sounds good. And the power of His resurrection. All right. And the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. Do you realize that dying a martyr was not what happened to Paul? It's what Paul longed for. It's what he desired to walk the blood-stained path of Jesus. To be like Jesus in every way, even to the point of dying in his faith. That's where Paul wanted to be. Which is why he wasn't afraid of dying because that was his hope all along, that he would be able to, be uh, enabled to, be privileged to die for Jesus. The fellowship of sufferings. By the way, years after pastor harvin's father accepted jesus as lord and savior i think it's awesome that is living godly in christ jesus even being struck and yet as paul said we are struck down but not destroyed and and harvin could say my my father is a follower Now, some might say, say, well, so are you saying I'm going to have to bleed? I'm not going that far. I'm saying some may. But what I am saying is there's a a kind of persecution for those who wish to stand up and be counted as belonging to Jesus. For those who who are going to say, look, I I can't do that. I can't go there, and I cannot say that that's alright. There's a kind of persecution. We've been seeing it rise in this country simply for desiring to see Jesus and when they when people look at you when they when they recognize Jesus in you huh, there's a subtle persecution especially when they see that your life has been changed from what it was before first peter chapter 4 verse 4 peter says in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you so you end up being maligned simply because your life has begun to change in Jesus or is different than you were remembered. Your childhood friend comes along, maybe a drinking buddy from college shows up and you're like, nah, I don't do that. Oh, come on, it's me! No, I, I, I'm, I'm I belong to Jesus now. Oh, Mr. Goody Two Shoes. And suddenly you have just suffered for desiring to live godly in Christ Jesus. You have just been persecuted. But if you would continue to run with these, note verse 13, "Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." So note this, that's what happens to those who choose evil understand this because the world doesn't get this the world thinks that there are good people and there are bad people the world thinks that good people can get stronger in their goodness and bad people can get stronger in their badness it's not true the truth is evil people don't get stronger they get weaker and weaker and weaker until finally they're destroyed that's what happens with evil Those who follow Jesus grow stronger and stronger and stronger, becoming more and more like Him. But those who would choose wickedness, who would choose unrighteousness and evil in this world, just watch. They will end up destroyed in it. It will take their life. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He does not come to bless, to encourage, to fulfill, to satisfy, or to make strong. He wipes out. And a choice of evil is not a choice of power. It is a choice of weakness. And the evil choice will simply go that direction. Remember the heart in and of itself, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is desperately sick. So we have a choice with the heart. We can either be born again and receive a new heart to abundant life in Jesus Christ, or we can get sicker and sicker and weaker until we die. And that's the truth of it. Jude verse 10 says these men, talking about the same types, these who would, evil men, these imposters, they revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. And that's what evil does. So the false teacher may do a lot of damage along the way, but he or she will eventually spin out, overcome by their own deceit, by their own hypocrisy, by their own lies, and especially in these last days. Because the truth always stands. Peter said, 2 Peter 3, verse 3, know this first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, you can expect it, following their own lust. And so that that wickedness and that lust and that deceit, it's going to take them down. I don't say that gleefully. I say that in reality. You, however, verse 14, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I know I've shared this recently, but I am so thankful to my parents. Because I am a product of one who was taught from childhood the sacred writings. I don't agree with everything in how I was raised, clearly, you know, the, the, the man that I am, they must have done something right. I'm kidding. This is where you laugh. I I am so thankful that I was raised in the sacred writings some of the things that I was taught growing up in my particular tradition as a kid, I have since, through Bible study, said, eh, no, I think we're missing it there. I don't think that's what Scripture teaches. But the impetus to be in the Word was one of the greatest gifts that my parents ever gave me. I, I'm one of these. It's funny, I was thinking about you, Les, because Les will say often, I'm a product of intercession. And I would say to you, I'm a product of the sacred writings. Now, I'm also a product of intercession, and Les is also a product of the sacred writings, but I think God put us together because as I've told you before, together we are one really good pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Parents don't underestimate the value of the sacred writings to your children. They may not fully understand But the fact that you keep coming back to it. I remember walking into my dad's office one day as a young man. As a kid. I was 8 or 9 years old. I had been out playing with a friend down the hill. I remember the friend's name. David Witt. Less. (laughs) That's what I called him behind his back. In front of him I didn't call him that because he was about 3 feet taller than I was. And really good at basketball. Kind of scared me. But I was playing with him. and, And I remembered. I don't know whatever happened to David Witt. But I remember this particular day that he started saying that there were certain foul words in the Bible. Now he was just saying that to get under my skin. He knew that I was a little church boy. Oh yeah, this word, and he would say the word and I go, oh, you know. And this word, and he'd say the word and I'd go, ah. Because in my house, if I said any of those words, I'd be eating soap for a week. <laughs> yeah, those words were in the Bible. Besides, the Bible's all contradictory. I was out I remember standing in his front yard and he was saying these things, and I'm going, Man, man, my eight years of long life and I've been taught lies. So I go home and I go into my dad's office and he's sitting there and I say, Dad, how do we know the Bible is true? How do I know? I was really rattled. And my dad opened his Bible and took me to verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is inspired by God. And I was like, ooh. (laughs) <laughs> I think it's the first time I heard that, really heard it. He said, Rick, son, this is from God. I said, yeah, but how do I know, Dad? And he took me to Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, and he said, well, then you need to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed of accurately handling the word of truth. I'm like, so I got a study." But he seeded something into me as a young boy that this... There's something here. That this is true, That this is legitimate. That this is God's Word. And I remember thinking, Ben, and it's carried my entire life, if this is God's Word, then it will work. It will be true. It is not contradictory. And those of you who have been here for the last 14 years know, from Genesis now all the way through 2 Timothy, we have discovered this book not to be, in any way, shape, or form, contradictory. Not even close. We have discovered this Word to be the Word of Truth. The Word of God. The very breath of God. And that's part 3 of our study and we end here. The breath of God. This Word, all Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. Theonustos, theonustos, Theos. God. Neustos. To breathe. To breathe upon. So all of this Word has been breathed upon by God. What does that mean? It means straight from the mouth of God. He gave this word. Well, Rick, I happen to know there are some theologians who don't agree with you on that. They believe some of it is from God and some of it is from men. And I would say, okay, who knows which is which then? The perspective that there are bits and pieces that are perhaps inspired by God. Or maybe originally it was inspired by God, but it's been... You know, distorted over the years. Well, for those who say that some of it is is God inspired and some of it is not, I just say, well, then you can't really believe any of it. You really can't. Because what are you going to choose? And and what are you going to base it on? Your own moral authority? Your feelings? I like how this feels, I don't like how that feels, so that's not of God and this is. You can't go that way because no one would ever agree and Scripture, well you might as well just throw it out if that's your opinion. Or if your opinion is that it's corrupted over the years, then you're telling me that the God who created something from nothing is incapable of keeping His Word from being corrupted. I disagree. And we have all kinds of evidence. I won't go into tonight go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, study this stuff out, look at the evidence for what we have, what you're holding in your laps today, and the accuracy of it that goes back thousands of years. Man, I, I almost tired of the argument because it's so lame. This is the inspired word of God. Peter said in 2 Peter 1 verse 20, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. God breathed. So I just say to you tonight, take God at His word or forget the whole thing. Don't play the in-between. Verse 16, continuing, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. We agree with that. For reproof or rebuke. You know what's wonderful about rebuke that comes by the Word of God? It doesn't sting so much. It doesn't hurt so much. There's always a comfort that comes when we open Scripture and go, you know, I, I think maybe... We're missing something here. Let's see what the Bible has to say. And we go to the Bible and we read that and we realize we were wrong. We don't go, ow, man, that hurts. hate that book. I don't know about you, but when I discover that I have been wrong based on Scripture, I always go, oh, okay. Well, I guess that's the truth. So it is profitable for reproof, for correction. Who among us does not need the occasional course Correction. For training in righteousness, so that the man, Anthropos, of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All scripture. When Paul was writing this in 67 AD, all scripture was what? It was the Hebrew scriptures. It was the Old Testament. All Scripture, the Tanakh, as it was and is called, the Tanakh, which is uh, it means the Torah, Torah law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. All that we have contained, we call the Old Testament, I like to say the Older Testament because it still applies, it still teaches, it's still inspired by God. So in the Older Testament, well, all of that, the Hebrew Scriptures, but get get this, this is important, 67 A.D., Did you know that by this time, the New Testament letters that had been written were already circulating and many of the Gospels already circulating with the exception of perhaps the Gospel of John, which maybe came a little bit later, but these were already being recognized by the Spirit-filled leaders of the church as God-inspired. Can you prove that? Yes, I can. Peter recognized the letters of Paul as Scripture. Listen to this. 2 Peter 3.15 Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, which some things are hard to understand. I love that Peter added that. Peter the fisherman. I've read his letters and I know. Sometimes you don't get it. (laughs) But then he says which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. Peter lumps in the writings of Paul with the rest of the Holy Scriptures as God-inspired. So he clearly believed that what we have in the New Testament, at least the letters that had been written at that point and the Gospels that were available were God-inspired, God-breathed, Spirit-filled, and note this, in verse 16 he says, All Scripture, and then in the end of verse 17 he says, For every good work. The word all and the word every, same word. It's the word pas in the Greek. So that all Scripture is profitable for all good work. John Bunyan put it this way. He said, This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Jay Packer once said, if I were the devil, one of my first aims would be to stop folk from digging in the Bible. And Alistair Begg, I love this quote, said, in the Old Testament, Jesus is anticipated. In the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the Acts, Jesus is preached. In the letters, Jesus is explained. And in the Revelation, Jesus is seen as He is. And it was Jesus who said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. Psalm 40, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of Me. So how do we navigate dark and darkening and darkest days, these last days? We do so with the lamp of all Scripture lighting the way in the darkness for every good work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the compassion, Lord, with which You bring Your Word to us, reminding us, teaching us suffering and persecution and perilous times are the deal in these last days. And as things get darker, Lord, we should expect more difficulty ahead and not pull back or shrink back from it but stand ever more firm on the foundation of Jesus, which is so apparent throughout the sacred writings of Scripture. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. We pray, Holy Spirit, that we will be always hearing Your voice, searching through Your Word to understand Your intentions, Your desire for our lives and living lives, Lord, that are right with God. Thanks to the blood of Jesus. Father, I pray over all of us, and I continue to pray for myself, You will make us students of the Word. Not always learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth, but Father, always learning, sanctified by the Word of truth. Your Word is truth. Thank You for Your Word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Your love is in like a of